Yeah, we're talking about last things. Um, and so let me get to our... Uh... Okay. And, and so we've been through um, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, remember the two questions there, the main question there that uh, was asked by the disciples that Jesus spends most of his time answering in chapter 24 was what? Yeah, destruction of the temple. And are there signs for the destruction of the temple? Yes. Yeah, there were signs for the destruction of the temple. And if you saw these signs happening and you were in Judea, what were you supposed to do? Get out. Get out. Yeah. So you see, there's a, a useful there's a useful purpose for the signs for the destruction of the temple. Um, it was practical instruction to the disciples of something that was soon to happen 40 years later um, and uh, that so that they wouldn't be unnecessarily uh, killed in Jerusalem. See, that wouldn't be a, a dying for your faith in Jesus. That would be a dying because you're in the wrong place at the wrong, wrong time, right? Jews in, you know, anyone who was Jewish background or anyone who was a resident in Jerusalem was in trouble when the Roman troops surrounded them in the Jewish War of 64 to, um, or sorry, 66 to 71 with the destruction of the temple and, and sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. Yeah, Matt. When did y'all get to, Okay, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so um, he answers that question. And if you read through chapter 24, you see the immediacy or the practicalness of the you do this and you do that. And you can see he's talking to these 12 disciples there. And he's giving them very practical instruction. But when he answers the, the second question... Um, that, and and uh, what will be the, the sign of your return? And he answers abundantly, starting at the end of chapter 24 and leading into chapter 25. What's he say with about five, five to seven illustrations there? What's his answer to what will be the sign of your return? Nothing. 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 Yeah. Uh, I will come and I will be like a, a what in the night? Thief. A thief in the night. You don't know when a thief is coming. And um, you don't you don't know when I'm going to be there. But when I come, it'll be obvious to everybody. Um, like when there are vultures in the sky circling, it's obvious. Or when you look ahead on the road and you see all these big birds on the side of the road, even when you don't see the, the deer or the roadkill, whatever it is, you see the birds and it's obvious to you that there's a dead animal. Uh, and so Jesus says... Um, so when you when you hear immediate to the disciples that I'm over here or I'm over there, don't believe it. When someone says he's here in this secret place, don't believe it, because when I come, it'll be obvious to everybody. Everybody will see me. The sign of my coming is you'll see me. <laughs> um, and so don't think I've come and I'm in a secret place or I'm off in the desert or um, you, you know that um, so just don't listen to that um, because that will occur during your lifetime. People say you know that kind of thing, but don't believe that um, because when I do come, whenever that is, and not even the Son of Man knows that date, when I do come, it'll be obvious to everybody, like lightning in the sky, like vulture, like vultures above. So that was chapter twenty-four and twenty-five. Uh, we we uh, headed into um, uh, Revelation 12 and looked at the full scheme of things from Old Testament Israel uh, to Jesus' ascension and how Satan is cast down out of heaven and woe to the earth because we suffer persecution greatly um, today. All right. Got background music. I feel like I'm in, in a mega church. <laughs> Is that, okay, that's Aaron's alarm to say it's 9.30. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So when Aaron comes back in, that goes off. Everybody go like that. Make him feel really bad. <laughs> 
That was Crystal's suggestion. I just want you all to know. No, Crystal was empathizing with Aaron when we all did that in nine and a half minutes. Okay. Um, and so, um, yeah, so now we're in, a per- we're in a time of great persecution of the church because Satan has been cast down from heaven. He's got full time down here to mess with us. It's a good way of thinking about it. Or as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, um, uh, 8, that Satan is uh, 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 going about roaring like a, or roaming about like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so be on your guard, Peter says. But you see how Peter's speaking out of this, out of Jesus' teaching. Until I come, just keep watch. Um, be on your guard. Know that you're going to be persecuted during this time. And what's the, what's the symbolic time frame that we have from Daniel, Revelation? Um, uh, what's the, what's the, uh, the numeric um, time frame we have of this persecution? And from Elijah's day. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, time, time, half a time. The time, times, and half a time. This is the, the biblical uh, symbolism for this period of, of tribulation that occurs as like the days of Elijah, where it didn't rain for three and a half years. And again, we're not an agricultural society. So during the winter, um, we still have strawberries because we're getting them from Peru or, or Chile um, from the Southern Hemisphere, which is having their summer. Uh, but if, if you're back in their day and it's not raining for three and a half years, you don't have food and you don't have water and things are really, really awful. You know, worse than having gas prices like, you know, from six months ago. Um, so um, we got that from there. And now we're talking about how... Um, uh, the that um, the next major event is second the second coming, and how the writers of the New Testament um, were looking forward to the second coming with everything being wrapped up, new heavens and new earth, um, final judgment, um, and all being made right. And, and this is not a halfway thing that they're looking forward to. But when they see Jesus again, um, he will be coming in glory uh, as a king, dividing sheep from goats and sending some to eternal destruction and some to eternal life. Uh, and so Jesus, in their mind, is not coming two more times uh, for three comings altogether, but he's coming again. And it's, it's the second coming. And not a, a second and, and third. And so, you know, just to get, um, uh, whoops, yeah. Um, let me see what I can do here. I'll just go, I'll just go back up, back up here, sorry. Um, just to put our eyes on this, the second coming is the New Testament's next big event, what Christians long for. Uh, let's just start. Can we, we start with you, Lily, back there? Go ahead. Uh, just that first uh, f- um, first bullet there. So the second. <clears throat> okay. And so we had looked at uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21 and, and saw, and, you know, 80, 54 or 61, depending on the writing date of Philippians, I think 54 is better. But it could be 61 while Paul's in his Roman imprisonment. Uh, but Paul writes before his Roman imprisonment that he's been imprisoned over and over already. It's just not recorded. All those imprisonments aren't recorded for us in the book of Acts. Uh, but what were they awaiting for? A savior from... Where's Jesus now? Heaven. A savior from heaven. And what will happen to their bodies when Jesus returns? They'll be transformed, glorified. And so here we go, um, I think. There we go. Glorified bodies. Transformed. Okay. 
So uh, Paul says, you know, uh, we've got all these all these things happening at the the next event that we're looking forward to is the lion laying down with the lamb, uh, glorified bodies. Um, so um, let's read let's read this one. Can you can you read this for us? Go ahead. Okay, thanks, Chase. Yeah, the, the idea that there's a, a rapture of the church. Um, so, you know, we see that, that, that we'll be transformed um, when he comes back. And we'll look at more passages that make, you know, that even more clear and, and pushed out. Um, Ashley, can you read this next bullet here? Okay, so first century, this is what they were longing for. So now let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. As we look at these passages, and as you read the New Testament with this in mind, you'll, you'll, you'll see this, that there's no, there's no conception in the uh, apostles' minds as they write the words of the New Testament um, that anything is going to happen but the return of Jesus. And you can just think about this when they, you know, when Jesus is answering the question, what will be the sign of my return? Um, he doesn't say, uh, well, I'm going to rapture the church first and then you'll know you're a little bit closer. Um, he just, you know, goes all the way with the second coming there. And um, uh, it talks about that. So first Corinthians chapter one, verses seven and eight. Um, Jeff, can you read verse seven and then Jim verse eight? Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So today, currently, for the Corinthians, this is AD fifty-five. Um, he says they don't lack what. Any spiritual gift. And what are they eagerly awaiting for? The Lord Jesus Christ to be real. Bob's been around a while. He knows I'm just saying read the text. Uh, so uh, they do not like any spiritual gift as they eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, is this is this rapture or is this second coming? So we go on to go on to verse eight. And what do we see in, in verse eight? Um, what does he say? You, you'll be kept strong to what? The end. the end. Is, you know, even in, even in dispensationalisms and, and, you know, that, that kind of thing, even in their conception of things, is the rapture the end? No. It, it's a midpoint. It's not quite the end. It's, it's part of what's going on before the end. But just to confirm this even more, what does Paul say? You know, that you'll be kept strong until when? Keep reading in the verse. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The rapture is never, now there's no rapture, but there's no reference to that as the day of our Lord Jesus. Whenever you have the day of our Lord, that's when Jesus comes back and there's final judgment and he takes over new heavens and new earth, that kind of thing. Okay? And so, they are eagerly awaiting in AD 55, the day of the Lord. And when do they think that will happen? Anytime. Okay. It could happen in their lifetime because Jesus said, here's my advice to you. Since I don't even know the, the, the day, um, here's my advice. What should you do? Be doing his will. Um, eagerly await. Keep watch. Okay? So, look at this. You, you, don't, you won't lack any spiritual gift. So, use that spiritual gift and just be doing my will with that spiritual gift in the church. Take the two talents you've been given or the one talent you've been given or the five talents you've been given and build my kingdom. Do my will. And then when I come back, whenever it is, 
I'll find you doing what I asked you to do. And you'll be in the midst of it when you see me on that day, which you currently in AD 55 are awaiting. Okay. Um, so, okay. Were, were there some hands or, or questions? Yeah, Bob. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so now, um, blame. So we have all these terms in scripture. Let's talk about blameless first. So we've got holy, godly, righteous, blameless. There are differences between all those words. Um, holy means what? Set apart. Set apart. Okay, that does not mean sinless. Now, sinless means sinless. And so you see Job, for instance, say he's righteous. But he also says, and there is no man who does not sin, including me. So, and David does the same thing. David claims blamelessness before the Lord, but he also claims sin. So we know those terms blameless and sinless are not the same. Those are words we have to distinguish between because the scriptures distinguish between those words. Only one person ever was sinless on this earth. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus was all these words. He was godly. He was holy. So godly means like God in character. He was holy. He was set apart. Okay? He was different. He was set apart by his behavior, who he was. Um, he was um, sinless. He actually never sinned. And he was also blameless. And righteous. Now, righteous is a, a term we've talked about a lot. What does righteous mean or righteousness? What's the little distinction there? Again, not sinless. Being faithful to the covenant. Faithful to the covenant. Okay, that, get that definition in your head. Someone says, I am righteous. They're like, God, here's your covenant and I'm being faithful to it. So if you're an Old Testament Israelite, you could say, I am righteous because not because you're saying you're sinless. You're without sin, but because you have no other God but the Lord, you're um, uh, not worshiping the Lord by idols, uh, you're not using his name in vain, um, you're obeying the Sabbath, you're not working on the Sabbath day, um, you're honoring your mother and father, uh, you're not murdering people, you know, you're living by love, you're, you're not committing adultery. Um, you're not stealing from anybody or moving their boundary stones on their property. Um, when you're called to testify in court, you're testifying truly. You're not bearing false witness and you're not coveting your neighbor's stuff or you're not looking at your, your neighbor in Ephraim and saying, boy, they got a better chunk of land than we did. I'm discontent with what God apportioned to my people. Okay. Um, and you're, you're attending the, the three festivals per year. And you're giving the sacrifices that the Lord told you to give. And therefore, you're righteous. You're keeping the covenant. Notice there, the covenant has inbuilt in it with the sacrifices that you are commanded to give as an Old Testament Israelite. It has built in, baked into the system. You will be sinning. How is that? Explain that to what I've just said to me. Going We're going to need sacrifices. So part of me being righteous <laughs> is offering a sacrifice to cover my sins. So what does God want to do with my sins, given the fact that he's commanded me to offer sacrifices? What does God want to do with my sins? He wants to forgive, he wants to forgive them. Is God a nasty old man in the Old Testament? No, he's commanding me to receive forgiveness. <laughs> He provides a solution, a whole system for providing for the forgiveness of sins. So, again, think of, we've talked about before, think of the sacrificial system. That is not works, folks. That is grace. God doesn't tell to the Old Testament people of God, you obey me perfectly and I'll accept you. He says, right, baked into being covenantally faithful, righteous, baked into that is you will sin, and here's a whole system of sacrifices 
And he says four times in the book of Leviticus, and when you offer this sacrifice, I will forgive your sins. So if you've heard in the dispensational context like I did, that sacrifices didn't forgive your sins if you're an Old Testament Israelite, that's wrong. That contradicts the word of God itself. Um, if you want those references, I'll, I'll look them up for you there. But four, four different times, at least in Leviticus, where it says, when you offer this sacrifice, I will forgive your sins. Uh, and, and that's what God's will was. He was a merciful, gracious God, which, of course, David talked about lots in the Psalms. And he, he commands his people to receive forgiveness from him. Uh, and, and so, um, but that's righteous. And so somebody who was, you know, generally like you folks, walking in the ways of God. And, you know, for us, it's, it's coming to worship on Sundays and, and, and our aim and our goal is to be faithful and to love our neighbor um, and, and to walk in his ways. Um, that's righteousness. You folks are righteous. Okay? But we're not saying in that that you're sinless. And part of your righteousness, part of your being covenantally faithful is not, according to the writer of Hebrews, since Jesus has come, your being covenantally faithful or righteous is not offering animal sacrifices. It's doing what? What do you have to do to be righteous in God's sight today. And it relates to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Yes. The sacrifice you bring is Jesus. And that's what saving faith is. Saving faith is, I, I am a sinner and I need, sac- I need a sacrifice. My sins deserve death. And God has offered to me a sacrifice that covers all my sins. And I'm not going to rely on my works as a sacrifice. I'm not going to rely on animal sacrifices as my sacrifice. I am going to put, this is saving faith, all my eggs in the one basket of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so the Christian, once he believes in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, is righteous in God's sight. And that's part of what we say in in our justification definition in the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Who wants to take a stab at that? And you can sing it in your head if you want to. Justification. Yeah, go ahead, Allison. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all your sins. He pardons all your, pardoneth all your sins and um, accepteth. And accepteth us as righteous in his sight. Hear that? He accepts you as righteous in his sight. Why? Go ahead. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And received by faith alone. Okay, so your faith in Jesus has forgiven your sins and made you righteous in God's sight. Nothing in that definition about works, right? Except for the works of Jesus. <laughs> but nothing about your works there. Okay, so um, uh, righteous, righteousness. So um, back to Bob's question now. And it's just, it's just so helpful for us to have a definition of that. So blamelessness is to be someone like Job. Someone like Job who's following God, seeking to... It's not, it's not quite righteousness. Righteousness is more tied to covenant. But blameless is very close to righteousness in Scripture. It's a blameless person is one that you'd look at their life and say, you know what, this is a nice guy to everybody who forgives people. He doesn't take revenge. Um, he generally loves his neighbor as himself. You wouldn't look at this guy and say, what a despicable man or look at this woman and say what a despicable woman or or she's nasty or he's a nasty man that's a blameless person a person that generally you know our session we were looking at first timothy three in our session meeting yesterday and one of the qualifications for elders is that a good reputation with outsiders And, and blamelessness is that kind of thing where no outsider to the church would look at you and say boy i wouldn't want to be like him Unless it's like he gets up early on Sundays to go to church, you know, but but in terms of your moral conduct, in terms of the way you treat people, in terms of your attitude and how you speak, um, that that's, you know, blameless. And so, you know, back to this first Corinthians 
First um, Corinthians eight. Uh, he will keep you strong to the end, um, so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to find you as a nasty person that non-believers are saying, "Man, stay away from him. That guy's nasty." Okay, but when Jesus comes, he's going to find you as a a, um, a progressively sanctified person, a person who is more like Jesus than he was the week before and the month before and the year before. And part of that is you having this not lacking any spiritual gift and employing that in the church and and the the Christ likeness that 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 builds that that builds in you. Okay, so good good question there. Okay. All right. Um, so our, our question here, Christina, would you read that question? What were Christians in AD 55 eagerly awaiting? Okay, so just look down in the text. What were they eagerly awaiting? The day of the Lord and the, um, uh, for Jesus Christ to be revealed. Okay. And now another thing, another thing in this, that language of Jesus Christ being revealed from this, we get Romans, Romans eight. And before Romans eight twenty eight, we have this discussion of when Jesus comes back, you know, it's going to be revealed Jesus in his fullness as Lord to believers and unbelievers and the sons of God will be revealed. And this is total. And that's what Romans 8 is talking about. And we'll be adopted, this final adoption. We're adopted now, but we'll be finally adopted, body and soul, with Jesus when Jesus returns. And, and, and the, the language there used in Romans 8 is the revealing of Jesus. This is language of the second coming. When all, when Jesus will be revealed, be revealed to all, to the sheep, to the goats, to those who have loved him, and to those who have spurned him. He is revealed from heaven to all. This is no secret rapture. This is a revealing. And so in this, baked into this, that Paul expands in places like Romans 8 and other places, in this term revealing is this idea the revealing of Jesus is when he's revealed to all. Um, Christians don't need to them to have it revealed that Jesus is in heaven and that they're safe. And that's what the rapture would be. Right? And, and, and so we say, no, Christ, that's no news. That's no revelation. If there's a rapture, there's no revelation there. But Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 or 1 uh, 7 here, he's talking about Jesus being revealed. And if he's talking about a rapture here, that's no revealing because Christians already know Jesus is in heaven and that he will gather his people to himself. The revealing is in reference to non-believers. It's Jesus as judge, right? The part of the exaltation of Jesus that all, all judgment has been given to him, John 5, um, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, all judgment has been given to him, Revelation 20, and Jesus, the one who has been rejected, will reveal himself to the non-believer and say, I am, your, I am the king you should have taken. I am the God who made you and held you together from conception until the day of your death. And you did not thank me and you did not bow to me and now bow and, and every knee will, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord or King. That's the revealing that Paul's talking about here. Okay. Any questions about that? Yeah. Steve. Uh, just off the top of my head, I'm wondering the people that are dispensationalists and believing that there is the secret rapture. Yeah, and that is, let me just underline what you've said. You know, Steve, Steve, like I come from this experience of dispensationalism, which many of you have. And, and the rapture very much is the idea with it is that it's secret and, and that people say, like, where'd, jo where'd John go? Non-believers after the rapture say, where'd John go? It, it's a secret thing. So, OK, go ahead. The, so we break bread with these and we call these people brothers. And, and they are. Brothers. Yeah. But yet that is a false teaching then. Yeah. 
Okay. So they would be false teachers. Um, so, so not heretics, but false teachers. Yeah. And so anytime we use the term, so good, good question. And so let's wrap that, unwrap that a little bit. When you use the term heretic or false, false teacher, um, we want to define that the way scripture defines that. And so think of Apollos. Remember when Apollos is first discovered in the book of Acts and um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla have to take him aside because even though he's powerful in the scriptures and he loves Jesus now, they have to take him aside and teach him the way more accurately. And, and that's a good way to, to um, view our dispensational and charismatic brothers and sisters. Um, and, and when we talk about false teaching, um, while in, in a... Um, in a wide sense, we'd say that's anything that's not quite wrong. You know, like when I say uh, that's in Rome, uh, Revelation 20 when it's in Revelation 12. <laughs> that's false teaching, right? Because I just told you the wrong reference. But, but false teaching in terms of how Scripture is concerned and how the church is taught false teaching is when we take one of the major doctrines of Christianity, usually a doctrine on which salvation depends, and we teach wrongly on it. And so if we teach Jesus is not uh, eternal God, that's heresy. And so the church through the centuries has defined heresy as if you get Jesus wrong, if you say he was just a man who was made into God, like the Mormons do, or um, uh, um, you know, the Nicene Creed was written for that reason. There was a guy named Arius who said that Jesus was the first of God the Father's creations, but nonetheless, he was a created being, Jesus was. And they declared Arius a heretic. And so they wrote the Nicene Creed. And that's why you'll, you'll sing it this morning, uh, the second verse in um, O Come All Ye Faithful, um, the, the PCA version. <laughs> we sing from the Nicene Creed. It says, God of God, light of light, very God of very gods, uh, uh, um, Begotten, not created. Um, and that, that's the language. That's, that's basically a quote of the Nicene Creed because they were dealing with a heretic in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, Arius, who was teaching that Jesus was created. And the church said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the apostles taught. That's not what the scriptures are saying. And that's not what the church has said for these 300 years. They were about 325. 325 was the council there of Nicaea. Um, and so, so when we're, we're interacting with, with um, people who believe in a rapture, um, we, I would advise against using the term false teaching, although we could say, I don't believe the scriptures teach that. Uh, just because false teaching is kind of a technical term that we use for getting Jesus wrong or getting salvation wrong. Like someone to teach that you're saved by Jesus and your own works. That's false teaching. That's false doctrine, yeah. I always say to them, I, I, I don't believe that, but it would be nice. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Yeah. If that were to happen, I have no, I'm not opposed. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so very much... Don't don't get in a war with your brother and sister or sister in Christ who believes in the rapture. Really don't, because that will just probably entrench them in their view. Um, deal with them in kindness, especially if you believed in the rapture before, if that's what you were taught. I, I'd lead with I I believe that for year, you know this many years, and then I started seeing it different a little bit differently in the scriptures. And I respect, you know, that, that you're trying to get your, your doctrine and your teaching out of the scriptures. I know you're not, you know, trying to say anything else. You know, so win them, you know, help, help, try to help bring them along and, and say essentially, like, like Paul does with the Jews in the synagogues, he reasons with them from the Old Testament scriptures. Or, or he goes to Athens and he reasons from them from the fact that they have a statue there that says to an unknown God. And instead of condemning the idolatry, he says, I see that your, you know, people have said that there's an unknown God who, who causes things to be. Let me tell you about that God. And so he commends them for their deism, for their belief in a God who, 
who changes things. And then he says, let me tell you about that God. So he brings them along in his journey to right doctrine. And so that's what I'd recommend for you with dispensationalists. Um, try not to turn them off because they will think if you don't believe in a rapture that you've left the faith, generally. Um, and so help them to be assured you believe the Bible through and through and just see things differently on that. And, you know, and it's okay just to say, I think the rapture and the second coming are all one thing. Because they agree with, they agree there's a, a rapture and there's a second coming. All you're saying is the verses that you parse out to be, these are rapture verses and these are second coming verses. You're saying, I believe all these verses too. It's just these verses that I used to believe speak of the rapture have things in them that really are speaking about the second coming. And like we're looking at here, the expectation of the church was that was all one thing. And that's what we're looking at here. That's, you know, the, the verses that are looked at sometimes by dispensationalists to say rapture. They've got little things in them that say, that's not the rapture. That's, that's the, that's the last day. That's the day of our Lord when he comes in judgment and, and casts out uh, unbelief from the earth for the, for good, um, for all eternity. Okay. So good, good questions there. Um, uh, next question here. Aaron, can you read this question? Last bullet up here. Kind of a trick question. Look at verses 7 and 8. Yeah, the day of the Lord. Okay, so no no date given, but um, he says this will happen, you know, the eager expectation they have, Jesus being revealed, is the day of the Lord. Um, so now let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Just turn the page maybe there. So further definition, what does Paul mean by the day of the Lord? So we want to just say, what, what does Paul mean when he says that? And so um, let's... Um, Let's go over, uh, Davis, can you read verse um, 13 and then Mike 14 and Harrison 15? His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. What he has built survives, he will receive his reward. And then Harrison 15. Okay, thank you. So this is talking about um, uh, how somebody, a, a person, and what they've contributed to the church over their life. And you can see that in verses 10 through 10 to 12 here. And that some people can build quality stuff that lasts in the church, you know, as if they were building with gold, silver, or bronze, that kind of thing. Uh, but some people don't put much care into their church work or, or how they treat people in the church. And, and their work is kind of half-hearted, so it's like wood, hay, or straw, which, which you know, it with gets burnt up. You know, wood, hay, and straw are things that you can burn. They don't survive the fire. Uh, but what is, so his work, a person's work for the church, for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, um, what is what does Paul say first in that first phrase in verse thirteen about a person's work in the church? It'll be shown for what it is. It'll be shown for what it is. Okay, and then second phrase: When will it be shown for what it is? On the day. Um, that because that day will be uh, revealed, um, or that day will bring it to light. And so, what's this? What is Paul saying will happen on the day? When Paul uses the term the day, like he did in chapter 1, what's he talking about? The day of the Lord's return. Because what happens on the day of the Lord's return? Final judgment. Okay. Um, so Paul talks about if he dies in prison in Philippians 1, um, he'll be with the Lord. But he doesn't talk about final judgment. 
Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be in, you know, with the body is to be away from the Lord, but to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. But he doesn't talk about final judgment. So when you die now, your soul goes to be with the Lord if you've believed in Jesus and goes to hell if you haven't. But there's no final judgment mixed in with your death. There's a, um, God knows what's what and he's not fooled and he puts a person's soul in the right place. And as we looked at earlier, probably three months ago, hell is the holding tank, Second Peter 2. Hell is the whole, or, or, Levit, or um, Luke 16 with uh, the, the parable Lazarus and the rich man. Okay, Hell is the holding tank of souls and hell is the holding tank of souls for the righteous heaven. For the unrighteous, those who haven't believed in Jesus, hell. Uh, but no final judgment. It's just it's just a sorting out until final judgment, until the last day. When Jesus is revealed, chapter 1, when Jesus is revealed and there's the last day, and then Paul fills out in verse, thir- in verse 3, it's not his point, but he reveals it to us. He fills out on the last day, there's judgment. And even for those in the church, it's the day when rewards and uh, rewards will be given out. Um, so people in the church, they'll be saved as through what? What's he say here in verse chapter three? As through, fire. as through fire. So it can be that a believer believes in Jesus and is saved, but he loves Jesus, but not the church. And so he winds up at final judgment, having done nothing for the people of God. And so he's saved, but yet as through fire. And all the stuff that he spent his time in, instead of, you know, being in church, you know, even just Sunday mornings and, and greeting people and being there for the worship of God, those are gold and silver activities. Um, but, you know, if you're just, you know, you know, like watching church on TV, Right, as you know, you know that joke from uh, Betsy. You know, and, and you're not building up Christ's people and encouraging them, them in the faith. And if you've Hebrews ten twenty five forsaken the assembly of meeting together, if you haven't chapter one used your gifts that God has given you to be a blameless person at the day of Je- at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Verse fifteen, but. All your efforts in life, they didn't count for anything. And they'll just be like the dross. They'll just be burned up. But, but to the point here, when God speaks of the day, when Paul speaks of the day, the day of the Lord, which is when Jesus revealed, this coming with this is final judgment. When God parses through everything that's been done, good and bad, and so, you know, just go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians, since we're close enough to it, in chapter 5. Uh, and we've, we've talked about this, you know, now a long time ago, six months, eight months ago, um, that even Christians go through a judgment. It's not a judgment for their salvation, but it's a judgment for rewards, which Paul has just spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 3. What have you done for me? What what have you done with these five talents that I gave to you? What have you done with these you know, two talents that I gave to you? And, and to those who have done much, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, here's the responsibility I give to you in the new heavens and new earth. Because you've been responsible. You know, he who has given much of much is required. And you took, you know, I gave you much. And so I'm giving you more. You know, and that's the, you know, the parable. Take from this man who I gave one talent, who did nothing with it, who just put it in the ground. He got saved and that was it. And didn't do anything for my church or expand my kingdom or to have me glorified during his life. Um, take his talent and give it to the one who's been faithful. Uh, but Second uh, Corinthians um, 5, verse 10 um, Anthony, would you read that for us? Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive that is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Okay. So this isn't a judgment that we fear, because it's not a judgment. We'll be saved even if all our works are burned up, right? 1 Corinthians 3. 
But this is a judgment we look forward to and that God wants to motivate each one of us to. Jesus is going to, he sees all the little things I've done for the people of God in the church. He sees the things I've done in society to be a witness for him in my kindness to people or every time that I've mentioned to a non-believer that I'm a Christian. To glorify Jesus. Here's a person who believes that Jesus is alive. That glorifies Jesus when you tell somebody you're a Christian or you belong to a church or you're, you can't do that because you're, you're, that, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm in church on Sundays. You know, I can, I can drop that off to you at one, but I can't drop it off to you at 9.30 or, you know, 10 o'clock. Um, and, and so, but, but this is a judgment we look forward to, to each one may receive what is due him for things done in the body. Um, whether good, that's for us. Or for others, again, all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For some, judgment will be Revelation 20. What's Jesus looking at in Revelation 20 for the non-believer? Not the book of life, but for the non-believer, he's looking at what? The books Yeah, the books that have recorded all that has been done. Uh, so, you know, even Solomon talks about this in the last verse of um, Ecclesiastes. Um, you know, he says... You know, now all has been now all has been um, uh, heard. He, you know, he, he he's talked about all these things in life. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Solomon says, "How should you live your life?" Here's the conclusion of the matter: um, uh, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the, the whole duty of man. This is why God was created to fear God as God and to serve Him, to keep His commandments. <laughs> And then last last verse of Ecclesiastes, for God will bring into for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Okay, so so that's not judgment by works for the Christian, but for the non-Christian it is. But for us, we will be our our good deeds will be judged, and what we've done will be judged, and and some will be you know, have a little bit of dross. I did this good thing in the church for my own glory. <laughs> so that's a half C there. It was good. You did this thing that actually helped. But God sees their motives. He sees through all that. And so it's not, you know, we will get half credit. We'll get credit, but it'll be half credit. But but when we do something in the church that's good and for his people and for the glory of, of, of Christ or something in society that's for the glory of Christ and our motive is I'm going to get obliterated for this because I'm speaking up for Christ in society, but I love Jesus more than my own life. Right? The cry we're supposed to have from the book of Revelation, right? That's how we overcome uh, by the blood of Jesus and the testimony uh, of our, our witness, our testimony because we love Jesus more than we loved our own life. And Jesus, and Jesus will say, okay, good deed, excellent motive, full credit. <laughs> now, everything we do has a little bit of sin to it. But, but that's very much a motivating thing. Um, and, God in, and God is putting that out to us um, all the time in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, motivating us that God sees all the good things you do. Right, Jesus sees the widow put in that widow's mite, that small copper coin, and says, she's done more than the rich people who put in 20 times as much because she gave all that she had. And Jesus sees that. And that, you know, it's not just he physically happened to see that, but he is God, sees all of that from Adam to the last person who's born. And he gives credit. He's fair. He's just. And so we rejoice over that. And, and we rejoice that all that we don't do so well was laid upon his body on the cross. And all that we managed to do well just gets added to our account. It's just extra credit. We started at zero. <laughs> yeah. But we started at 100 out of 100. Yeah, and we, we add extra stuff to that. And so, you know, think of Romans 1. The non-believer is storing up for himself wrath. For the day of judgment. Again, the day. Storing up for himself wrath. And so, you know, God is merciful when he takes the uh, the, uh, the life of a non-elect person when he's 16. 
because he stored up less wrath for himself. You know, if that person never believed and lived till 90, you know, it's every day he's storing up more wrath for himself. Another day of being ungrateful to the God who gave him life. But for us as believers, the joy is the things that we do wrong were on Jesus' cross and the things that we do right for his glory are added to our account and he actually gives us reward. And so, um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees unbelievers and they pray but how do they pray where do they pray publicly on the street corners corners to be seen by men i tell you the truth what's he say yes they've received their reward in full the only reward they're getting is the admiration of men during their day who happen to see them on the street corner right then nothing else Not at final judgment. They won't receive a thing more. And so he tells us, how are we to pray? In secret, in in the closet. Because God who sees us in secret will reward us. Uh, And so God sees everything and he grants reward. um, And he grants reward... um, that, you know, and, and that's part of this. Every man will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's at the last day, Revelation 20, when Jesus, his throne becomes a judgment seat. Same seat, but it, it's, it's, you approach the king because he's the final judge. He's the Supreme Court. And all judgment's been given to him. And he uh, doles out um, reward as, as uh, Jeremiah um 1710 um, says, uh, you know, I, I, the Lord exam or I, the Lord uh, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. And so that's what Jesus does. His throne, his kingly throne in heaven becomes on the last day, his judgment seat. um, And he doles out reward to his people. Um, to our great delight, um, and he doles out fairly um, judgment and condemnation to those who have not believed in him, who still have the wrath due for their sins sitting on themselves instead of uh, having been placed upon Jesus um, on on his body on the cross. Okay. Um, so... Um, Last little thing here. Um, Teresa, would you read that question? What are some things Paul says will happen on this day that the Corinthians were awaiting? Okay. So who wants to sum that up right there from um, 1 Corinthians 3? Yeah. Yeah. So on the on the last day, that's the day when Jesus sits as judge, as judge for believers to hand out rewards, as judge for unbelievers to hand out their condemnation. And that will be fair, too. Not the same thing for everybody. He who's done worse will receive worse because God is judge. Okay. All right. Let's pray.